Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 152, The Vengeance Factor. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Now, each week on Mission Log, we pick apart a single episode of Star Trek, looking for morals, meanings, and messages. And we're going to do every episode of Star Trek, every one ever made. This week, one of those episodes, it's The Vengeance Factor. In a moment, John will bring us a bit of episode-specific trivia, but first, we want to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. That handle again, Mission Log Pod, all one word. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can. The number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, Ken, I have a ton of trivia, just a boatload of trivia. I want to be very, very clear and very certain that uh, this being the factor, this is no spin trivia. <laughs> wow. Uh, I really hope that's forgotten at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing personal. Please save your email. I hope. Yeah, I can't remember. <sighs> Go ahead, John. Don't worry, Ken. I get all the email. Um, today's episode, The Vengeance Factor, was directed by Timothy Bond. Now, this is his first of two next-gen episodes. Bond was born in Canada, and his first directing gig was a movie called Deadly Harvest, an agricultural disaster movie that didn't exactly wow the critics. Now, he would cut his teeth on some interesting horror-themed TV shows before getting into Trek, stuff like the 1980s version of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Friday the 13th, stuff like that. Um, shortly after Next Gen, he directed Tech War, Tech Lab, which was written by William Shatner. Now, today's story, The Vengeance Factor, was written by Sam Rolfe, a name very important to me since he co-created the TV series The Man from Uncle. Uh, the other producer on that show was Norman Felton, but Rolfe is credited with really giving Uncle his flavor, fleshing out all the details of the organization and the characters. He and Gene Roddenberry had already crossed paths since Rolfe was co-creator of Have Gun, Will Travel, which Gene had written for 24 times, starting with season one in 1957. Rolfe passed away in 1993, and we will see one more Star Trek credit to his name later. Uh, referenced at the end of this episode is the USS Goddard. I'm assuming it was named after Robert Goddard, who launched the first successful liquid fuel rocket. Though I would also put in a vote for Paulette and or Jean-Luc. Um, now, we didn't mention that in season three, we have new phasers for the Enterprise crew. There's a really nice close-up in uh, Riker's hand of his phaser at the end of this episode, showing off some of the practical effects, like the force setting. Uh, really cool-looking shot there. And, uh, Ken, you ever notice in 10-4 those little black pyramids sitting on the tables? They're kind of hanging out in there. I have not. Okay, well... It, it, believe me, 
<laughs> when you look at scenes in 10 Forward, there are uh, little black pyramids on almost every table. Those are actually 80s video games uh, made by Bandai called Pair Match. Now, it was released in 1984 in both black and white versions. It's basically an electronic version of the game Concentration. Uh, there were no changes made to that prop on screen. What you got out of the box is what we see in 10 Forward. And these days, if you find one on eBay, it'll set you back about 50 bucks. Now, uh, guest stars. Lisa Wilcox as Utah, one of her first breaks while studying acting was in commercials for Wendy's. And uh, after a few TV guest star roles, she got a much bigger break as Alice in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that would be four and five that she was in. And incidentally, she had just auditioned to be in Halloween 4 but lost out and almost immediately got the Nightmare on Elm Street role. Um, she was a regular in the TV version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and she took a break from acting for the better part of the 2000s to focus on her jewelry company. After a few years, though, she got back to work in front of the camera with roles in a number of projects, many of them trading on her notoriety in the horror genre. Stephen Lee played Shorgun. And uh, he has numerous TV credits in his career, uh, regular stint on Nash Bridges. He appeared on Boston Legal alongside Shatner. Early in his career, he had roles in some major 80s touchstones like Heart to Heart, Remington Steel, Love Boat, and the movie War Games. Now, he'll make one more appearance on Next Gen. Sadly, we lost Lee in late 2014. Uh, Mark Lawrence played Volnoff. He got his start as a character actor in the early 1930s and really never stopped working until he passed away. We will see him again in Deep Space Nine. Uh, Nancy Parsons played Sovereign Marouk, and she started her career in the 70s and racked up a decent number of TV roles. She made it through two Porky's movies and then on to L.A. Law, also Remington Steel, of course, Moonlighting. So we'll have to get back to her someday. And uh, Joey Oresco. Now, he played Brol. And uh, Oresco had a long and varied career on screen. Has had, continues to this day. And um, he has appeared in soap operas, uh, General Hospital, Santa Barbara, Dallas. Had a regular gig on Black Sheep Squadron. And he appeared in one of the most fascinating flops in TV history, Super Train which aired all nine of its completed episodes in the spring of 1979. And Ken, you may be asking, you know, what, what's the deal with Super Train? Uh, Super Train was sort of NBC's answer to the love boat. Yeah. And it was about this. You remember it? Because yeah. nobody I've talked to yeah. has remembered this. I remember that Super Train existed. Okay. I, and I remember thinking, you know, that would be neat. And then the problem is I was like, what, nine, I guess, if you say it was spring of 79. Yeah, yeah. And it was pretty much uh, NBC's answer to Love Boat. I thought it was going to be a super train. <laughs> well, the the idea, nuclear-powered giant train going cross-country every week. And, and like you said, it's NBC's answer to the Love Boat. It was originally going to be a transcontinental flight every week and then they said no let's put another train yeah. i mean i i was seven and honestly if seven-year-old me was in charge of nbc i would have greenlit this show of like nuclear powered train yes of course <laughs> you know uh, but it was a massive flop it nearly bankrupted nbc that's, really that's how, yeah wow. it was the most expensive tv production to date uh -huh. um when that show was made and it nearly killed NPC. So uh, that's Joey Oresco's career. That's 
I'm sorry, that's Joey Resco's career? That's it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, really not, nothing else worth mentioning. <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, Joey Resco appeared in an episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. Thank there, you. There, you're welcome. By the way, uh, interesting connection there. Uh, the executive producer of Super Train, Alan Curtis, <laughs> he was the man who created Dark Shadows and he created Night Stalker, which turned into Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, 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 and, and another connection, Chitty Brill, who played Arnie Darvin in The Trouble with Tribbles, he was also a regular on Super Train and, and, and an episode of Super Train was directed by Next Gen director Cliff Bowl. Finally, Super Train Podcast coming autumn 2042. In this episode, the science fiction classic, Dune, is not mentioned. However, a classic American musical is. The boys are expanding their reference base. An away team led by Commander Riker is beamed in... Uh, somewhere. The place has been ransacked. Even the power reactor is gone, which explains why they couldn't get in touch with... whomever. Behind the green door... Actually, the whole place is green. Data picks up life signs. On the floor, Dr. Crusher picks up a sharp object. It's got blood on it, but not human blood. She'll have to investigate. Data and Worf finally get past the door with the life signs behind it and find two unconscious people. Who are they? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The fact which will become very apparent in Act 1. Act 1. The two unconscious people are scientists and they'll be fine. The real deal is the blood found by Dr. Crusher. It's Akamarian. That means whoever stripped the science station and injured the scientists were probably gatherers. Think of them like pirates, but... Like pirates. Nomads. Wanderers. Taking what they need by force. Well, that cheeses it. Picard heads the Enterprise toward the Akamar system. There he hopes to get Maruk, the sovereign of Akamar 3, to do something. Maruk has an idea. Why doesn't Starfleet help Akamar hunt the gatherers down? Picard has a better idea. They're your people. Or at least they were a hundred years ago. Make peace with them. Bring them home. Boy, you just don't get it, do you, Picard? Akamar used to be this blood feud kind of place. Violent and nutty. That all ended about the same time the gatherers gathered their things and left. Picard and Troy say, yeah, okay, but it's been like a hundred years. Maybe they're ready to stop running and fighting and would like to come home? All right. Maru doesn't think it'll work, but she'll try it. She just needs two more servants from her planet, and they're good to go. Set course for the Hrami Cluster. She thinks there may be a gathering encampment there. When Maru is shown to her quarters, we get to meet her personal chef and food taster, Yuta. Or we would, if Riker weren't completely monopolizing her time and attention. You can totally see why he would be in love with her right away. I mean, she's... new... Riker hips her to the replicator and says he'll have one of the techs help her program in all the Akamarian dishes she'll need, provided she'll make one for him, too. Orbiting Gamma, Harami 2, there are signs of life and encampments. Riker leads an away team consisting of Geordi, Data, and Worf. They find lots of soul and stuff, and are attacked by unseen assailants. Act 2. Worf wants to kill all of the assailants, though Riker reminds him they're here to establish contact... Instead, they make a smokescreen, appear to beam out, but actually get the drop on the attacking gatherers. Now let's talk. We brought the Sovereign of Akamar, and she brings an offer of amnesty. Cut to the start of some silly negotiations between Maruk and Brol. He is the gatherer's leader. 
and they're like idiots in a high school movie, jostling each other, hurling insults at Marouk. Principal Picard gets them in order, though, practically begging the two sides to talk. Marouk tells Brawl that the clan wars are over, that it's a past they're ashamed of, the reason the gatherers had to leave. But it's time to come home. Brawl says he wants to speak to Marouk alone, something Counselor Troy sees as a good sign. She senses he wants to hear more from Marouk without appearing weak to his people. Wandering around the gatherer encampment, Yuta comes across an old gatherer, one she identifies as of the clan Lornak. He seems to know her as well, but he says it can't be her. She assures him it is her, Yuta, of the clan Trelesta. Then she touches his face. Then he falls down dead. While dying, there's still time for him to hear her words, I am the last of my line, but my clan will outlive yours. Then he dies. Act 3. Prol says Maruk's offer has value, though he'll have to take it to the leader of the gatherers, Chorgan. Prol says he'll have an answer for them in 20 days, The Picard says he so wants to be so far away from here so much earlier than that. Besides, Maruk says she would like to take the offer to Chorgan herself. Picard says he'll take Brule on the Enterprise. Just then, someone's calling for Brule. They found the old dead gatherer. Riker calls back to the Enterprise for Dr. Crusher. Brule says, look, he was old. There's nothing anyone can do. Another gatherer starts gathering the old man's things for himself. When Dr. Crusher checks the old man out, she says he died of a heart attack, but he shouldn't have. His heart was fine. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Brule makes fun of Ensign Crusher. A kid? Flying a starship? Doesn't inspire much confidence. He then tells Wes where to guide the ship. The proposed course would take the ship right through an asteroid belt, so... No. He'll take the ship a different way, really fast. In 10 Ford, Maruk is telling Picard about the blood feuds and clan wars that kept her planet in chaos for centuries, and Picard's like, yeah, my planet too, right? I mean, a long time ago. Brule comes in and starts talking to Wesley. It's a weird exchange, though through it we find that Brul has two kids. He's going along with Maruk's reunification idea because he wants something better for his kids and for himself. Yuta comes back to Tenford, bearing the Akmarian dish she'd promised to make Riker. He and Counselor Troy really enjoy it until Troy realizes that she kind of doesn't belong at this table anymore. Riker and Yuta have an interesting, if not altogether illuminating, conversation. Yuta can never be free, though she is not a slave, not the property of the Sovereign. She can go anywhere, though her path is all too clear. Riker says she speaks in riddles. Well, here's something plain. She says Riker would make a bad sovereign because he has difficulty with the idea of servants. She's right. Riker says he prefers equals. It's then that Yuta is called back to the sovereign, which is fine since Dr. Crusher calls Riker to sickbay. She's found something. It turns out the thing that caused the old gatherer's heart attack was a microvirus. Thing is, this microvirus would only kill one Akamarian in a million. The virus was engineered, which means the old gatherer was murdered. Act 4. All Riker wants is a little rest. No sooner does he close his eyes than data pipes end to let him know that they've got access to the medical database of Akamar 3. Or they will as soon as it transfers via subspace. Good. Let Dr. Crusher know when we have access. Riker, out. Eyes closed again, and now... Ugh. Who's this at the door? Oh... Why, hello, Yuta. Are you here to... Whoa, hey, what's your tongue doing in my mouth? She explains that she just wants to do whatever will give him pleasure. Does this not please him? Yeah, remember that whole equals conversation? Still applies. Even in matters of love? Especially in matters of love. Riker says he just wants to make Yuta as happy as she makes him. She deserves that. 
starting to cry, she says she does not. She does not feel pleasure or passion, has not been able to for a long time. Riker says he doesn't know who did this to her, but it can change. She wishes it could, but it can't. Riker gives Yuta a consoling hug when suddenly the ship goes to red alert. It's being fired upon by Chorgun, the leader of the Gatherers. That lasts for about 30 seconds before the Enterprise knocks out Chorgun's shields without destroying his ship. Finally, Chorgun's willing to talk. He's a bit upset with Burl for bringing the Enterprise here, though Picard points out if he wanted Chorgun dead, he'd be dead. Now, he'd like Chorgan to hear the offer of amnesty from Brull and Maruk. No ifs, ands, or buts. They're beaming over. Picard out. Aboard Chorgan's ship, it's Maruk, Yuta, Brull, and Picard, along with Chorgan, of course. Negotiations start testily. Chorgan goes from being convinced Maruk intends to put all of the gatherers in prison, to being insulted by her offer of land, to demanding seats on the ruling council. So he is warming to the idea. Back aboard the Enterprise, Data, Dr. Crusher, and Riker are doing a bit of research on everyone else who may have died of the microvirus that killed the old gatherer. That person was Lornak as well. And this is interesting. Chorgan is also Lornak. Oh, and here's a picture of that other guy that died 53 years ago. And that is Yuta in the background. And she hasn't aged a day. Act 5. Negotiations are contentious, but that's the nature of negotiation. Back and forth, give and take. Picard says, hey, look at it from their side. And that calms things down a bit. Maruk had offered Chorgan a bit of Akamarian brandy earlier. That sounds pretty good now. And Yuta goes to give it to him. The brandy. Of course, with Chorgan being Lornak, she's also giving him the murdering microvirus. Or she would if Riker hadn't beamed in. Phaser blazing. He stuns one of Chorgan's guards, then tells Yuta to step away from the Gatherer's leader. Finally, the truth is revealed. She admits that she is of the clan Trelesta. While all were thought to have been killed, five survived. She was chosen by the group to live on, to seek revenge. She was transformed, her cells altered, her aging slowed. All leading up to this moment, seeing the end of the Lornak line. Riker tries to talk her out of it. I've seen the part of you that regrets what you've become. She apologizes to Riker, then moves to kill Chorgan. Riker stuns her with his phaser, then ups the setting. She moves to kill Chorgan again, and Riker stuns her again, and ups the phaser setting again. One last pleador. Yuta, don't do this. She moves to kill Chorgan again, and Riker fires again. This time, disintegrating Yuta. Chorgan tells Riker that he's in Riker's debt. Aboard the Enterprise, Picard tells Riker that the crew is due for some shore leave. With the gatherer truce, in effect, everything in this sector should be good. Riker says he'll pass the news along to the crew. The end. Man, a lot of plot. A, a lot, lot of plot, plot yeah. And, and that, that scene where he says, you know, I know there's still good in you. And then they take the, the mask off so he can say, you know, let me look upon you with my own eyes. It always, <laughs> always really gets me. Yeah, I got to yeah. say, uh, I don't know if Razzies were around then, but I would yeah. think that award for most awkward hug Ooh, has yeah. to go to the one when Yuta was trying to make out with Riker. And he's like, no, 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 I, I want you to want to kiss me. I don't want you to just kiss me. <laughs> um, it's not like you're some holodeck creature or something, and then <laughs> and then he like pulls her to her, but it's it, it gets weird. It, yeah. they, they should have gone back to kissing because it just mm-hmm. it felt like the weirdest the weirdest darn hug. Now of course she is about thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years older than he is. It turns mm-hmm. out, yeah. But we don't yep. know that then. It, she's also an alien. Riker could have just been like, maybe this is the way you people are, and uh, I should learn your ways. 
you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, although, yeah, Horn Dog Riker is so on display here. I mean, I really, I couldn't figure out the best way to say it in the thing, but it's like, oh, he's in love with you. So, well, of course he is, because, you know, she's blonde, and mm-hmm. she doesn't know about him. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what the immediate attraction was, except that, you know, well, it's right here on page 28. I'm supposed to be attracted to her, so let's go. Right, right. And, and actually, they could have just cut to the chase by having Picard introduce him as, and now here's uh, my first officer, the full Riker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, you very just nice. get to know him. Um, so at the beginning, yeah, we are really not meant to know or care much about those scientists yeah. uh, at all. I, were they human? Were they Federation? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it stands to reason, I guess, that they were Federation because we care that they're there. Honestly, the way that – so the actor, when he was on the um, – whatchamacallit, on the, on the, on the bed in sickbay, mm-hmm. the way his hair was falling over his ear, I thought for a second that he was Vulcan. And I mm. thought, oh, well, she did say that there was non-human blood on that sharp object. So, oh, no. Okay. These guys really don't matter. <laughs> right. At all. I tell you what does matter. That painted backdrop that is lit green, mm-hmm. uh, that was used in Forbidden Planet. Really? Yeah. Wow. I want to go back and watch it again now. Very cool, huh? And then uh, I want to go back and watch Forbidden Planet and then take a picture of the two of them side by side. <laughs> right. Yeah. We should do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that Riker is very specific about the temperature of the drink that he orders from the replicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, Picard just says hot. Yeah. Riker is like, no, five degrees. And, and also really water. That, that's, that's it. You know, Maruk doesn't want to test the machine with a martini or something more impressive. She's just, no LQ Sonny Clemens. She's not. She's no. not. No, yeah. she's not. Um, Worf, uh, good to see him back to his old ways. Uh, they understand only this as he looks at his phaser. Yeah, apparently well versed in gatherer lore. All mm-hmm. of, all of a sudden. Yeah, he he is an expert yeah. gatherer expert. That should be the baseball cap that he wears from now on, <laughs> um, <laughs> or a pen that says "Ask me about the gatherers." <laughs> right. Uh, now, I thought it was a really good idea, or at least the, the, the fake-out, the proposal of using the transporter during a fight, because then I thought, well, I'm kind of surprised they haven't done this before and have done it over and over and over again. Like, beam us up, now move us, you know, two meters to the left. Okay, now put Data over there. Okay, now put Worf over there and just keep doing that until they completely exhaust the enemy. Well, they didn't actually beam up at all, though. No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, right. it, here here it was a ploy, but... It seems like that would be a really good use of that because had they beamed up, well, okay, just uh, put us down in another configuration behind those guys. And then we'll I don't know. It out. takes a bit of time, though, and it makes noise. It seems to me like the second time mm, you yeah. do that, then yeah. the people you're fighting, assuming you don't get the drop on them the first time, then the second mm-hmm. time they're going to be like, oh, okay, everybody keep your eyes open. And the second you start to see something materialize, point your phaser at it. Good point. Although they're they're a little uh, wibbly wobbly about what that actually does when somebody's beaming up. You know, every now and then, well, like, no, no, you'll no. See, when they're beaming, see a blast go through. No, I mean when they're beaming down. No, I mean wait for right, them. Right, to, right. Wait for them to materialize before you do anything. Just you know, be standing there at the ready, so that as soon as they materialize, they see that you're standing there pointing a phaser at them. There, well, there you go. Yeah, and you just keep shooting. Yeah, well, I don't think okay. <laughs> We're not tacticians. Please move on. Please, no, please, no, no, please. No. Um, by the way, that that bit with uh, Riker trying to explain the the replicator to to Utah and yeah. his attitude of like, yeah, well, we have a kitchen, but 
Nobody uses it. I mean, come on. Why would you use that old thing? Here, let me cook you some eggs. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> he, he's all like, oh, who would do that? Well, except me. But, you yeah. know, that's what I'm trying to impress Dr. Pulaski. Right, right, with my terrible, terrible cooking skills. Um, now, the Wesley Brule scene in Ten Ford was, was kind of amusing. It was a little overwritten, particularly with Wesley going through his, oh, I'm studying, and it's, you know, just to show off. But Brule has this great line, I have many friends that don't like me. I like that a lot. It's, that was really great. interesting. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering which, like, yeah, I would love to take that apart sometime. I don't think we're going yeah. to today, but no, I have no. many friends who don't like me. Is uh, I don't know if that's warped logic, if it's, a, if it's a different idea of friendship. That's, but, yeah, it was a great line. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it was a good thing that trick toward the end with uh, Picard ordering Worf to knock out the enemy's shields only did just that. Yeah. Like, we got the impression that this is a very old, not a very powerful ship at all. And he was like, do you think you can uh, just knock out their shields? Hey, well, I, I think I can do that. Okay, try to do that thing. Oh, look, it worked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. If, yeah, and Worf could really have just blown it up. Yeah, he really could and have. And been right like, ah, well, turns out I couldn't. My bad. <laughs> right. Is the show over yet? Can we go now? <laughs> Let's get to no. a Worf story for crying out loud. It's been weeks since we had one of those. <laughs> exactly. Says Worf. Yeah. I had a weird, um, I was confused. So at the end of the episode, yeah. uh, Picard wanders into Ten Ford. Yes. And somebody hands him something that's for the captain. I am so glad you made a note of that. What the heck? <laughs> oh, Captain, I was, I was just on my way to bring this to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, is that the deal? Just, I'll just stop into Ten Ford for a quick one. And then yeah. five hours later, there's that. Or, or is it just like, oh, yeah, no, the captain, the second uh, mission's over, the captain, like, wanders into Ten Ford. He's here for, like, a day. So I just, I just have to be here. <laughs> it struck me as very odd. You know, you see, you see people do that on the bridge all the time. But you know where you do things like that? Is on the bridge. On the bridge. Where the captain yeah. is. Where you think, oh, I have something important for the captain. I'll go to where the captain is. Not just, oh, I have something important for the captain. I hope I bump into him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that, too, because there were only a handful of possibilities. Like, that <laughs> that crew member, like, it, they just stay in 10 forward all the time yep. with that important piece of information, just hoping the captain will come in, and now they're, now it's his big chance. Yep. Like, oh, oh, okay, oh, he's finally here. I get to do my thing, and my whole job <laughs> is to wait in 10 forward to hand this thing to the captain. It is so stupid how much I thought about this, because the other thing I was yeah. thinking about was, okay, well, maybe, like, there are a bunch of people walking around with pads, right? Let's say 15 mm-hmm. or 20 of them, and they all get these orders for the captain. So if they happen to see the captain, they go ahead and, you know, they give him this thing, right? Right. But then the problem is, if he walks anywhere on the ship, there are 19 other people looking to hand him this thing. By the time he right. gets to the bridge, he's going to be like, I've seen it! <laughs> Which, again, just seems very inefficient. Just, if it's that important, text it, text it to him. <laughs> exactly. He'll get it. Right. Or captain to the bridge, or captain to a secure comm, or, hey, right. captain, everything's fine here now. Because I think that was actually the message. The message <laughs> think, was actually, oh, with the gatherer truce in effect, you guys are fine. That would have actually yeah. been a good thing for the whole ship to know, right? Why yeah. not just go ahead and beam that out to everybody? Unless, you know, it's part of Picard's management style to be like, mm, let's let him think that we might still die any second. <laughs> Give Riker the joy of delivering the news that, no, we're going to be fine, but still watch your back. Right, right. Um, one thing that I, I have to mention here, because I, I thought about it too much, just like 
you have both thought about this too much, yep. was um, I kind of hate it when a computer can just restore data that isn't there in a picture. Yeah. So yeah. it's like Blade Runner, that, yeah. that scene in Blade Runner. It's that old sci-fi trope of you know telling the computer, oh, ju- just enhance it. Just just well, enhance it. Okay, in Blade Runner, it's especially egregious because they're, they're yeah. going behind uh, images in a 2D picture. Now, you can right. say it's future technology and maybe it's recording information that it cannot present yeah. in, in a 2D format. So it gives him a printout, but maybe there's other stuff you know sort of encoded in it. Maybe it does a 3D something or other that's never really explained. Mm-hmm. I was actually cooler with this than I was with the thing in Blade Runner, though, because he does say I should be able to extrapolate what the rest of the face looks like. Mm-hmm. Ba- based on that little sliver. Of oh, her please. Face. If Riker so, were in love with her, uh, as in love with her as he thought he was, he would have recognized her from that sliver of her face. Uh, he should have. You can see he her should, eye. Yeah. You can see her forehead. You can see her cheek. I'm just saying. I mean, it, it actually, this one did not bother me. I did think of the Blade Runner thing, though, because it always bothers me when they – it's like on – I hate the ones where they do it today, too. And maybe they actually can do this, but I doubt it because I know that my smartphone can't. <laughs> right. Hey, enhance that quadrant, won't you? Yeah, yeah right, because I can yeah. do that. I can totally take this blur and make it into letters. Hey, uh, Officer Krupke, what letters do you want it to be? Because I'll just go ahead and make this uh, any, uh, any, uh, any license plate you want. Yeah, Officer, See, I, Officer Krupke. By the way, I think that might be the first West Side Story reference on. That Mission was good. Log. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 100, I, we're 100, not going to do the song. 151, 152 episodes in. Yeah, and I can't believe it took me that long to get to that. We will not do the song. Wait a minute, Riker did what? Seriously? Riker did what at the end of this episode? I kind of feel like there's a lot of important stuff to talk about here. Really? Because I didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Part of the fun that we just kind of, you know, get get out of the way first is navigating the, the diplomatic course between a, a very stuffy, very civilized group and then the other barbaric group. I, it, it's all a little heavy handed, but we get to watch as they scowl at each other and Picard tries to make the best of both, you know, reminding each group to treat the other humanely and with empathy. I mean, th- this is sort of all classic Star Trek stuff and and classic put Picard in that position to to be the negotiator you know so that that felt very at home to me in this episode yeah but it was you know pretty nicely done there was a lot that I liked about the way Picard handled all of this and it's weird because it's easy to get caught up in the whole negotiation part of the negotiations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I, I really do like the fact that um, I mean first of all uh, Picard went over to Chorgon's ship by himself I mean he's got you know Yuta and, and Maruk and that other right. tall guy who never says anything but <laughs> right. as far as Federation representation he's the only Federation guy and Riker's like dude you, you, this is dangerous and then Picard's like look you're going to blow them out of the sky if anything goes wrong first of all mm-hmm. but second for these negotiations to succeed I must be a mediator not an enforcer Right. And, I, and I love that. And then he also does just dumb stuff like, you know, like like Maruk says, you know, what you're asking for is an outrage. And Picard's like, look, if the shoe were on the other foot, wouldn't you be asking for the same thing? Mm-hmm. God, oh, you're right. I didn't think about that, Picard. <laughs> Thank you. It's so lucky that you came here and not, I don't know, the captain of the Yamato. Except the Yamato <laughs> is gone now, so I guess the captain of the Yamato wouldn't be there. But the captain is something else. The Yorktown, maybe? The Excelsior? The HMS Penafor? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what other captain would not be as good, but 
they are lucky that Picard's there because he is able to keep a, a, a head on everybody's shoulders, it seems. And Baruch's gone a very long time as the the sovereign of this group and and not figured out things like, oh, negotiation, empathy, trying to understand where the other group yeah. is coming from. Well, <laughs> the problem is, John, she can only do one thing, and that's be Lady Sovereign. Sorry. I just I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. And for people who don't know that song, you're kind of lucky because it gets stuck in your head. And for people who do know that song, I'm sorry. And you can sorry. send as much hate mail as you want because John gets all the email. Um, Now, one of the other things that I thought about was uh, the many times that we've discussed people walking away from the Federation or or just Earth in particular to live a different life. There there are just colonists everywhere. The the universe is lousy with colonists. Mm -hmm. And and the gatherers have have left their home for political slash tribal reasons. And is it presumptuous to assume that they would want to come back? I mean, we, we kind of brush that aside pretty quickly when when we meet them. They're like, uh, well, they're, they're like, yeah, well, we, we don't want to come back. We don't want any part of your world. Well, come on, really? Well, okay, yeah, we do. <laughs> well, know? I mean, they at least do feel them out on it. I, they, they do. I mean, for about 20 seconds, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but I wonder, you know, ha- had you let things run their course, yeah, it's a pain that they're out there gathering. They're out there taking down ships and taking down science stations, would they not have just ended up in a place at some point? You know, would they not have just ended up on a planet or a station or something to call their own one day? And then you, you give it a few hundred years and they are their own culture. Well, maybe, except let's do that thing that you always do with that Japanese soldier from the $6 million man. I mean, these, mm-hmm. guys are, mm-hmm. these guys are flying around, and yes, I know there were some real soldiers like that. Somebody actually wrote to us recently and said, you know, it's not just the $6 million yeah, man. We know, we yeah, know. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. it's more fun to reference the $6 million it's, man. Because, exactly. come on, the guy had a bionic eye, and he jumped in slow motion, or, you know. There was Bigfoot. I mean, there, yeah, but there was Bigfoot. That's, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's when they jumped? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, let's take it back to that. I mean, the Marauders, or the Marauders, the Gatherers are out there. It's weird because they still have some, you know, sort of association, apparently, with the old homeworld because they say, oh, we brought the Sovereign of Akamar, or of Akamar 3. Akamar uh-huh. 3. They brought the Sovereign of Akamar 3. Does that mean that there's a Sovereign of Akamar 1, 2, <laughs> one 4, two. 5? Yeah. Who knows? But they bring the Sovereign of Akamar 3, and, uh, and Brol is like, Marouk? There's <laughs> not even a question of like, oh, who is that, or why? Why do I care what that person is? Like, oh, Marouk, no way, she's here. She's here, really? She's wow, mm-hmm. you brought Marouk. Okay, so there is still some association. At the same time, these guys have been laboring over the past hundred years, or you know, their their predecessors have been laboring. They've been laboring over the past hundred years under the assumption that the wars are still happening, that all this yeah. you know bad yeah. stuff is still going on. So maybe they never would have settled in a place because. You know, any second now, somebody from the clan Telestra, and well, I'm sorry, they're all dead. Oh, wait a second. Oops, somebody right. from some clan, though, might, you know, land on their heads and, and start and start killing them. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Even Marouk said that at the beginning. Picard's like, look, we got to do something about these gatherers. And Marouk's like, well, you've got a ship with guns. Why don't you help me kill them? I mean, <laughs> she actually says, you know, she starts to say something and, and Picard stops her. He's like, we're not going to hunt them down. And so, I mean, it, it, you maybe couldn't blame them for, for, for keeping up the marauding lifestyle because uh, apparently if Marouk had had the power, she would have just started vaporizing him. Yeah, yeah. Again, well, thank goodness Picard I, was there. Yeah, right, 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 right at the right time. Um, all right, so now, now should we do this? 
because we we have to, and this is the big thing that it, that I feel like has generated a huge amount of preemptive email and commentary from listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to the very end of the episode with Riker's decision to shoot and then vaporize Utah. Um, and, and compounded with the, the fact that Picard has no reaction <laughs> whatsoever. And by the way, the, the, there is a mention of that, though, that uh, Timothy Bond says that this is kind of, it may have been a mistake in retrospect, but you, you had a limit of how you can do the optical effect. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's seated, they can't move. They have to get the effect in place to vaporize her. So everybody's got to stay still. There's no reaction. He would have, in retrospect, shot it a different way hmm. so that they could maybe get a reaction in there. See, that's interesting because I assume that Picard knew that it was coming. Oh, interesting. And interesting. that that's why, I mean, that yeah. he had already steeled himself for, man, if she does that one more time, this is not going to end well. Yeah, well, maybe so. Maybe so. Well, I, so here was my thought about it, though. I mean, we, we got all of this interesting feedback before now, before we're recording this. Um and I was not entirely sure what to do with this uh, because I feel like what we do is figure out what is the point of the story, what is the message of the story. Now, I, I don't think that is the point or the message of the story. This is a weird, dramatic turn of events that is a, an ethical conundrum. Um, and it certainly is morally ambiguous. Um, and we can debate the varying levels of ambiguity there because the, the questions all come down to, you know, were there other things that Riker could have done? Maybe and probably and maybe most definitely. Did he know that he was safe, that, that the virus he was carrying wouldn't affect him? Well, sure, because we already established that and he was there for establishing that. Um, but I feel like this story wasn't about him. It's not about Riker. Riker is kind of a prop in this mm-hmm. episode. Um, the point of this episode is Yuta being, and, and here maybe I'll use this line, being so inflexible that she has outlived her usefulness, <laughs> as somebody once said. I think it was the uh, captain of the Amato that said that, wasn't it? Oh, he was so good. <laughs> he was so good. You know. um, sorry that we, we lost him in that terrible accident. Um, the script does a pretty good job of humanizing her, and, and and by that again, Riker just being a prop to serve that purpose. Hmm. Now, now, Utah represents everything that is terrible about living a life that is defined by tribal loyalties and by revenge and this this hyper moral sense of retribution and and righting the wrongs. We've seen that over and over again in Star Trek, and, and I call it out each time. You know, Utah's fundamentalist adherence to her code. Her worldview is what kills her when she can't bear to absorb new information and change her understanding of, of what's happening around her. We do it all the time. We Maybe not you and I personally, but we, we as humans do it all the time. We stick to what we know and we justify terrible decisions to make them fit into the narrative that we want to be true. So... Yeah, I, I, I know that you have thoughts on this, too. But, I mean, to, to me, the, the Riker thing was sort of I, – I don't want to say that it's unimportant because it's certainly important. But I feel like that's not the, the point or the, the moral here is what Riker does. Right. What Riker does, we can debate it. But that's not the point of the episode. Well, you kind of have to debate it. It seems to me you have to debate it exactly as far as what serves the point of the episode. Um, mm-hmm. 
I wrote out this long thing here and, and interrupt me, you know, whenever, but I'm just going to read what I wrote out. I'm just going to interrupt you right now. Okay, okay we'll do that. That's <laughs> no, fine. No. Let's talk about, okay, John. All right, fine. Okay. Um, I did not read any of the feedback and listen, it's nothing personal. Mm-hmm. I saw all these things come in. I think you and I have talked about this before. I know we talked about it on the, uh, on the supplemental, the second supplemental, the third supplemental that we did from Vegas, I guess. Yeah. Um, I just don't read the stuff that people send in beforehand because I want to approach it with my own with my own eyes and ears. Sometimes I don't even watch the episode with my wife because she'll say something and I'll be like, wow, I wonder if I would have thought of that. <laughs> or now <laughs> I'm just getting what she's saying. Um, I try to watch it in the vacuum as much as I can. So no offense. I have not read any of the feedback. I'm kind of curious to read it now. Um, By the way, you, you know what's funny? One of the first emails that we got was before I had watched this episode. Mm-hmm. And, and it was somebody who said, boy, that scene at the end where Riker vaporizes Utah. I was like, oh, <laughs> what? what? Son of a thing. Oh, what are you gosh. doing to me? Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert, please. The show's <laughs> only 27 years old. Oops. <laughs> All right. So here's what I wrote out. Let's talk about what I assume will be one of the most difficult parts of this episode, Riker killing Utah. Um, from the nameless scientist on Outpost, who really cares? We know that you can stun and stun and stun someone and that they'll be okay. It may take a while, but they'll eventually be fine. So then the question is, why did Riker kill Utah? And I think the thing you have to remember is for the purposes of our show, Mission Log, and for the purposes of Star Trek uh, doing what Star Trek is meant to do, there is no Riker. I mean, they're good stories, and we all have our favorite and least favorite characters, and it's certainly easy and fun to get caught up in the props and the costumes and the makeup and the alien cultures and the who's your captain. And by the way, I support the who's your captain debate. <laughs> but when you get caught on canon, when you get caught on a character suddenly doing something that it seems to you there is no way that they would do that, we might then miss the point of the episode. This there, is not to interrupt you, but it's just to back you up really quickly. Just okay. to say that, that I, I have had this ongoing conversation in email as well, yeah, um, because it's one of the things. Well, well, of course, Worf would do this, and of course, Worf wouldn't do this. And I'm like, but he's the Klingon, and and a Klingon is not really a guy, right? <laughs> you know? right. right. Worf is words on a page, and so is uh, so is Riker. And I know we right. have to address something in a minute. I know we have to address something original series in a minute. Sure. Um, sure. I will say though, there is almost no way that Riker kills Utah. But of course, since there is no Riker. Then he does. Riker here is an instrument of the message, which is something along the lines of vengeance or blind loyalty to vengeance leads to death for all parties. Um, I want to say we had a similar discussion during Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Why did Kirk let the white and black guy and the black and white guy chase each other um, around the Enterprise, then back to the planet where they're both going to die? Um, and the answer is because that story wasn't about reconciliation and it wasn't about saving anyone. It was about showing how stupid prejudice was. And this episode, mm-hmm. The Vengeance Factor, is about something similar, in my estimation. Uh, blind adherence to old grudges, to racism, to nationalism, to you know, old hatreds is just as deadly for the person perpetrating the deed as it is for the person being chased, beaten, or killed. And that message is stated again and again and again in a few ways. I mean, Utah is a person out of time, mm-hmm. like, like out of her own time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's 100 years old, <laughs> or 50-something yeah, years yeah. old, or 60-something, or 70-something at least. Her prejudice, her anger stretch back, you know, a hundred years. And it and she are anachronistic at this point. And she can't love, driven as she is by her mission, which is hate. 
And even at the business end of a phaser, she can't stop herself from doing it. And so for this story to work, Yuta has to die in the end. And the way it's written, it's Riker who has to pull the trigger, uh, whether he actually would or not. And I started thinking about, well, you know, it could have been Data. Oh, well, it could have been Worf. Would have made mm-hmm. more sense if it were Worf, certainly. Mm-hmm. But then you don't get the whole love thing and the whole humanizing thing that you're talking about. And so for the way this was written, it has to be Riker. Now, should I go ahead and ask myself the question that I have a feeling you might ask me? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. What does this mean for the gumbification of bones? Because I complained about that so much. Yeah. It felt like a lot of times what happened with bones was not either it wasn't necessary or it wasn't as well written somehow. Bones, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, we need him to be stupid to move the plot along. I mean, Riker does something here that's very dramatic. Riker does something here that really changes you know, the, 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 the tenor of, of the story. And Riker does something here that really drives what I personally see as the message home. Um, not just, oh, this week Riker doesn't know anything about women, and next week Riker's a Lothario. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. this was out of character, but not completely out of character, whereas bones it always felt like they just it's just like well we need a dumb guy this week okay well make it the doctor make it the chief medical officer of the ship he'll be stupid this week so i know i get caught in this trap as much as anybody does of like of thinking too much about well no but remember in this episode he said this so there's no way that this could be that's just playing gotcha with the writers i mean sometimes the story has to transcend the character i guess or has to has to sort of uh, go beyond the bounds of what has been likely action for the character to a point. And uh, I feel like that's what happened this week. Well, okay, so we're straddling that line here on what what a piece of entertainment has to have. And, and that is, well, it's got to be entertaining and, and entertaining not just in a, you know, flashy, funny way or whatever, but, but in this case, emotionally invested way. Mm-hmm. So we're already sort of emotionally invested in the characters. We're, we're already emotionally invested in Riker. Yeah. And, and as a piece of drama, you write this so that, um, so that Riker has the highest stakes to deal with. You know, mm-hmm. so so there's that we we get to see how how Riker deals with this problem that he has, where he he learns the truth about this person that he's he's falling for. Now, the other part of the story here is this this statement piece about vengeance and and like I said, the 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 hyper moral uh, uh, revenge and and all this stuff that this this fundamentalist view that Utah has that is going to kill her no matter what. Mm-hmm. Either it will kill her at the end of a phaser or it will kill her in a scuffle with the rest of the, the, the gatherers, whatever the case may be. But it will kill her one way or the other. And she represents the, the worst of us. And, and Picard has already done the bonk bonk on the head. He has already said flat out, oh, yeah, Maruk, let me tell you how horrible it was in our own history when we did the same thing and all of us in the audience are supposed to go, Oh yeah, that's right. All of these terrible, you know, local and tribal scuffles, uh, uh, whether they are local and tribal or they become things like world wars, they are terrible and they will be our undoing that that's the, the intellectual part that's supposed to kick in. So we have both of those things happening and you can't just have an episode that is the sort of cool and detached history lesson that that would become. We, we have to make it personal and we have to make it emotional for us to, to get involved in it. 
And I think it was the right decision to make Riker that person. Like you just said, had it been Data or had it been Worf, and yeah, Worf you could have justified and you could have made sense out of him actually killing somebody because he's a security officer and he's there to assess the situation and and uh, make it less dangerous, even if it means killing somebody. Well, in this case, they go with the dramatic answer, which is to go with Riker. So I I get it. And then the, the, the other discussion we get to have is to say, okay, well, did Riker do everything that he could do? Well, if this were real, no. <laughs> if this were real, right. then Riker could have called Chief O'Brien and said, do something, get her and me out of there. He could have used stun over and over and over again. It, you know, there are all these other what ifs that we could cook up. But because this is not real and because we're doing the dramatic interpretation of this, she has to die and it probably has to be at Riker's hand. I believe it was Mr. Rourke who said, revenge is a dish best served cold. What do we make of what was served in the vengeance factor? now to do that thing that we do where we decide whether the um, episode that we are looking at this week, The Vengeance Factor, stands the test of time. Plus, we get to pick out any messages, morals, or meanings uh, that may have been scattered throughout. Uh, Let's start with the... I don't know why we start with this one, actually, but we do, so we will. (laughs) Uh, Does this episode hold up to you, John? Um, You know, I feel like it's a little bit of a misstep in season three so far, though not nearly as painful as the price. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, this story boils down to who killed that guy. So we're going to solve the mystery of who killed that guy. Um, now, the writer, Sam Rolfe, in this case, uh, does, like I just said, what any drama writer should do, which is to heighten the drama by creating emotional involvement. You know, So he creates the relationship between Riker and Yuta. Feels a bit forced, feels a bit soap opera like. Um, I, I kind of hate the explanation for Utah's appearance. Like, oh, it just happens, cellular, blah, 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 wave my hands, and now she's, you know, nearly 100 years old, but looks 20 or however old we decide that she is. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, one listener suggest that it was kind of a cop out that the reveal is handled by magic slash technology. The, the the reveal in the photo rather than Riker being smart, <laughs> you know, Riker figuring this out mm. um, because then it kind of makes the, the, the emotional part of the drama that much more serious and that much more heartfelt. Um, so I, I, I get that, you know, but this is the choice that they made for this particular episode. So uh, it does it hold up it, to me. Not really, you know, it, it's, it's borderline. The things that I like about it are we get that good old, good old classic kind of eye rolling people negotiating at a table, which apparently is something we just love about Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, Had the soap opera part of it been handled not so much like a soap opera, maybe there would have been things in, in that that I liked better. So hmm. I, I, I was almost ready to give it a pass. Um, 
but I feel like it's just on the other side of of not holding up. What about you, sir? Uh, to me, this is a sexier, less on the nose telling of "Let that be your last battlefield." Um, but or let this be your last battlefield. Well, let that right. No, let this. I'm pretty sure it's let that. Yeah. I'm going to check the thing over here now. <laughs> okay. Do I have it? Do I have that card up? It's let Do that. You... I've got that card up sitting right here. It's let that you be your last battlefield. Up. Not only did I remember a title, oh, I you corrected you on you a title. I corrected oh. you on a title of original series Star <laughs> Trek. I can has I'm, all the points. I'm done with the show. <laughs> done with the show. And if it wouldn't hurt my microphone the way I make my living, I would drop my microphone right now. <laughs> I would drop my microphone and rock off and there'd be no show. And and you're done with the show, so it'd really be a uh, show. I'm done with the show. I'm going to be replaced by Robot John Champion. Where was I? Uh, to me, this is a sexier, uh, less on the nose telling of let that be uh, your last battlefield. Uh, with a side of Lost Boys, uh, the ones from Peter Pan, not the vampire movie. Okay. And come to think of it, there's actually a bit more Lost Boys tie-in with um, Hook. They actually look like the Lost Boys from Hook. Oh, my God, they do. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. There's a lot of this. I mean, it's uh, this is a cartoon. This is a cartoon. I, I, I regret how immature those guys were at first, but again, kind of like the Lost Boys. And then what they really do want, like the Lost Boys, is a mom. They do want to go home. Mm-hmm. And that's not always going to be true for everybody. It's not like you know the U.S. is going, I miss England. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always going to be the case, but in this case, it happens to be the case. Um, uh, because it's cartoonish, there are things that I regret. I don't like Riker's immediate love for Utah. Yeah. Um, he is what we've always accused Kirk of being. Hey, is that a woman? I'm on it. I mean, it's just, that part is bad. Well, well, here's the thing. And and you could see why he would fall for it. Like, she's beautiful and and all this stuff. Stop right there. That's it. That's the only (laughs) reason. Because she is giving him no signals whatsoever. She's giving him absolutely nothing. And that's the kind of woman that Riker goes for. He walks up to her. He's like, so, you're a girl. And she's like, yep. He's like, (laughs) I like girls. Good. I like you. Right. Right. That's the thing. I I would like to have seen her written as awesome just, just so great yeah that he would have just you know no excuse but to fall in love with her yeah, yeah. That, that would have been cool the only problem is i mean she's so bent on her course of destruction yeah i yeah. mean and, and i like that part too where i mean it, it is stated repeatedly what the problem is with you know with 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 vengeance what the problem is with the nationalism with the racism with the whatever you want to call the ism in this episode mm-hmm. i mean she she can't love anymore she can't feel she can't think she is free to go anywhere but there is one course for her and she'll never be free even though she's nobody's slave she chooses to be servant of the sovereign now, of course she chooses that to be so that she can be the instrument of the Lornach demise um yeah there are problems with this episode but overall i actually ended up liking it i think it hmm. does hold up if you look past the problems which i know is, is <laughs> stupid because you want to i mean where it honestly gets difficult is we have gotten to really know these characters now. We've gotten to really like these characters now, and we've seen some amazing writing in season three. And this is not amazing writing. And yet I think right. there are still good messages here. I think there's still a lot of stuff, a lot of weighty stuff to be discussed, and I don't feel like it's done so poorly that, that you can't discuss those things, that you can't really think about those things. Nothing took me completely out of this episode. What came closest was Riker's immediate, quote, love, unquote, 
uh, for Utah. Well, see, that's why I think it's interesting that we do the things the way we do them. Not not necessarily in the order that we do them. Does the episode hold up? What are the messages? Blah, blah, blah. But But this, to me, is one of those episodes where I can make a firm separation between production, you know, mm-hmm. the, the script, the directing, the acting, whatever, and messages, morals, meanings, because the discussion that you get to have is great. Um, and, and it has all of those interesting Star Trek hallmarks where, like I said, you've, you've got the weighty sociopolitical topics, but then you have an ethical conundrum that we get to kind of argue over. The, the, this one is a little... Yeah, we we can all look at it and go, well, Riker made the wrong decision or Riker didn't exhaust every possibility that he had. And maybe this would have played out very differently with somebody else in a different situation. But again, this is what they went with. Yeah, okay, that's, fine. that's not the story they were telling. Yeah. Despite the fact yeah. that they were using Riker to tell the story, this is not a Riker story. Exactly. Like some exactly. of the Worf stories yeah. have very much been Worf stories. This is not a Riker story. This is This is really – this is not even really a Utah story. This is a – Hey, racism's dumb. Hey, right, nationalism's right. dumb. Hey, holding on to grudges is dumb. I mean, any yeah. one of those three would apply equally, I think, in this in this episode. And, you know, this could honestly, this could be an episode of Hill Street Blues almost as easily. You know, with the rogue mm-hmm. cop who hates black guys and, you know, he's mm-hmm. out to get them. Or the black guy who hates white kids and so mm-hmm. he's out to get them. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, Star Trek happens to be the layer laid over this story this week, but this story... I don't know. It's it's very Star Trek message, but it's not a Star Trek story. Yeah, if that makes it, well, sense. If so, you're talking canon and things like that, if you're talking about you know um, uh, the continuum of the Star Trek universe and all that stuff. Yeah, but but again, I think that's why you and I sort of get not not well, frustrated is the wrong word, but but you know our, our hackles sort of go go up a little bit when we start to try to fit it into that discussion of canon or this character did that or it's like well so you know here, what here's my but, panel proposal for the next uh, for the next star trek convention there is oh no, no star trek okay <laughs> there you go. congratulations happy whatever anniversary it is everybody yeah bring bring your tomatoes go and, home and dress uh, up like something lettuce. else uh, yeah. yeah there is yeah. a moonlighting though so there is yeah. <laughs> sorry and uh, and there's a super train uh, um, so the messages yeah, what, what did, did you just hit it? I mean, are, are those yours? Well, I mean, the whole vengeance is dumb, racism is dumb, holding a grudge is dumb thing, sure. Yeah. Don't fall in love too quickly because she might be a murderer. I guess that might be another one. <laughs> I like that. That's a goofy one, though. I apologize. No goofy morals, just the... Uh, although I guess that one could be true, but... Well, yeah. sure. And apologies if that's happened to anybody listening. Um, I, I would say that there's another thing that I really like in this, that, that Picard has a very admirable attitude about diplomacy, mm-hmm. which is keep trying. There is always a chance to negotiate to extend the olive branch. You know, along with that comes not maintaining your old prejudices about the opposition. There will always be a common ground. We learned that from Riva, <laughs> you know, back, yeah. back in the day. Um, the attitude is this, you know, when he's talking to Maruk, oh, it didn't work 18 years ago, the last time you negotiated, okay, try again. Yeah. And then when that doesn't work, you try again. That's, yeah, that that is so important and it is so necessary and it's so relevant, whether it's on the micro level or the macro level, when you're talking about social and world politics. Of course, of course, that is an important message. Um there's another thing in here, you know, you, you can't build a civilization on righting every wrong, on punishing every slight. 
because that's what these people have sort of devolved into. And, and the sort of fundamentalist tribalism in the extreme is terrible. And, and it is what will tear a culture apart, but it is also what will lead to the end of the individual. That, that's what happens to Utah. You know, that it absolutely eats her up inside. And then she, she's going to meet her end somehow. Whether it's at the end of Riker's phaser or not, it doesn't matter because her life is what will absolutely destroy her in the end. Um, so all of those, all of those messages hold up. And that's what makes this interesting. You know, again, I, I, if I come down on the side of the episode, maybe not being my favorite, it, it sure is an interesting episode to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it brings up a lot of, uh, well, I think as the last roughly hour proves Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly brings up a lot of interesting points. And now, yeah. let me bring up something else, if I may. <laughs> Mission Log. That was so clumsy. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about the fine work being done by all things Roddenberry at roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That is trek.fm. And you'll find that online. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. That you will also find online. Ken, we'll do it all again next week with The Defector. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Do not try to make Riker's actions make sense. That is impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. There is no Riker. And transmission. <laughs>